If you have a Bible with you, you can open to Revelation chapter 20. We'll look at verses 1 through 6 this morning, and the text is also printed in the bulletin. Um, so there's a, a little-known story. It's a band of, uh, it's about a band of nine friends on a quest, and a uh, good bit about a ring and a dark lord and something about the end of the world. Uh, in this little-known story, the Dark Lord crafts this one ring of dread power in order to dominate all life and take over the world. And there's there's one wizard who was part of the, the group of the good guys, uh, but who betrays his friends and betrays all good folk who thinks that the wisest course of action is to join forces with the Dark Lord. And he tries to uh, convince others to join him and join forces with the Dark Lord. And he's deceived and he believes that the Dark Lord will reward him for his service. But a good and faithful wizard exposes the folly of joining the forces of evil, and he proclaims the truth to the deceived wizard, and he says, there's only one Lord of the Ring, and he does not share power. And that statement rings true for us. Evil doesn't share power. Evil sees power as maybe you've heard this phrase, a zero-sum game, right? The only way to win the game is to get all the power. There's a finite amount of power, and I can grab all of it, and no one else would have the power that I do. That's how you win the game of power. That's how evil sees power, and evil never shares power. And a power that looks to, to dominate through violence and through fear, even to dominate by more subtle means. A power like that is not a power that can be trusted to reward even the most faithful servants. That much should be intuitive. That's the kind of knowledge that you can gain from experience everywhere in this fallen world. Dark lords do not share power. Not intuitive, however, is the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ that the good Lord does share power. For the triune God, power is not a zero-sum game. For the triune God, to share power does not diminish him. It displays his true glory. And that's the good news of our passage this morning. <clears throat> and really, it's the good news of the whole book of Revelation. The good Lord does share power, even with people like us. So that's what we're going to talk about this morning. Let me pray, then we'll read the scripture. <clears throat> Father, your word is perfect and true reviving our souls, making us wise, rejoicing our hearts and enlightening our eyes. And it is more to be desired than gold, and it's sweeter than honey. And here we have it. So we pray that as we consider it, consider your word together this morning, you would do your good work in us now by the power of your Holy Spirit, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Revelation 20, starting in verse 1. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit, or the abyss, and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him, so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. 
After that, he must be released for a little while. Then I saw thrones, and and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also, I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or on their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So the interpretation of this passage in particular is probably the most heavily debated in the whole book of Revelation. Here's where I'm supposed to go into uh, the views, the major views of this passage as it relates to the bodily return of Jesus to the earth. And we're supposed to compare and contrast the premillennial and the postmillennial and the amillennial positions on the end times. Look, I tried doing that in my notes and man, that just takes up a ton of time <laughs> talking about all that stuff. So <clears throat> I would love to talk about that stuff with you if you're interested. Uh, I'm sorry that we don't have sort of the sermon discussion planned for afterwards uh, that we normally might, but uh, really it's probably just a bit too academic for our general purposes this morning. I will say that if you're already familiar with those debates, the debates on the millennium, the thousand years that are talked about here, if you're already familiar with those, and if you've been paying attention through our series on Revelation, which I'm not sure, I mean, you have as I drone on uh, about Revelation, but if you have, there's a good chance you could guess which approach we're going to take here this morning. So I won't say much about it. I'll just take a minute to um, uh, suggest to you a good book called A Case for Amillennialism (laughs) by Kim Riddlebarger. So, uh, so, but actually let's take a minute to remember where we are in the book of uh, Revelation. Jesus is giving John a, a series of visions. They're symbolic visions. They're called that in the beginning of the book. He's given him these visions to communicate to the seven churches in particular as sort of representative of all the churches uh, in the ancient Near East, in the uh, Mediterranean area, um, to communicate to these churches. They're listed in chapters 2 and 3 to encourage them to persevere in faithfulness to Christ. That's Christ's goal in giving this series of symbolic visions, to encourage the churches to persevere to faithfulness in Christ. So, The churches were facing increasing hostilities and persecutions from the Romans and from the Jews from that team-up, that international global uh, team-up of the Romans and the Jews. But no matter how desperate and out of control things might seem to the church, this book, the vision, the revelation of the Lord Jesus, uh, is meant to encourage them. He actually is in command. Jesus is the king. Jesus is the Lord. All these things are going according to his plan, and those who remain faithful to him will receive their reward from him. Jesus makes promises like these to the churches that we see in chapters 2 and 3. In uh, chapter 2, verse 11, he says that the the one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death, language that we see in our passage. Later in chapter 2, in verse 26, Jesus says, the one who conquers and keeps my works until the end 
To him I will give authority over the nations, even as I myself have received authority from my father. And then in chapter 3 he says, The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne, as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. These promises that we see, the language of them, beginning to be fulfilled in our passage. The church was called to be faithful, particularly in the face of this diabolical coalition of Rome and Jerusalem as they cooperated in putting pressure on believers to renounce their faith in Jesus. So it was this international coalition of enemies instigated by the devil himself. It was like the Dark Lord of the Rings amassing his forces for battle, gathering the orcs, calling evil men, even converting former good guys like self-interested and susceptible wizards to his side. But in the arc of the prophecy of Revelation, Jesus would ultimately judge those forces. He would dismantle that coalition and he would subdue the dark Lord who was behind it all. And we saw him doing that in a really significant way in the last chapter at the fall of Jerusalem, right? So the fall of Jerusalem in the year 70, uh, after that, there would be rejoicing in heaven and the gospel would speed throughout the world. Because the chief enemy of God's people, the dragon, that ancient serpent, the devil and Satan, the chief enemy of God's people would be prevented, as it says in our passage, from deceiving the nations. Right? This means that the devil wouldn't um, necessarily be destroyed at this moment, but that he would be stripped of the power, especially to form these global coalitions of nations united in their antagonism against the church to deceive the nations so that they would persecute the church together. The devil isn't entirely out of the picture, not yet. We see that in our passage. And he still is able to deceive here and there, to stir up persecutions here and there, but it's nowhere near the same threat level that it was for the early church. And this is because the Lord Jesus is stronger than the dark Lord. And the Lord Jesus shares his victory over the dark Lord with his people. So as Tim read in our gospel reading, Matthew 12, Jesus has bound the strong man. Which means, obviously, Jesus' power is greater than the devil's. It's a different kind of power, ultimately greater than the devil's power. And therefore, Jesus has been able to plunder the devil's house and to take back for God what the devil had stolen. Jesus demonstrated this power many times, as recorded in the Gospels. Uh, The devil and his minions, they seem to have uh, really saturated the the countryside of Judea. It is uh, not normal for us and for people really at any time to read the Gospels and to see how many demon possessions and oppressions and demons entering people and ruining their lives. How how much of that was going on? Well, the, the evil forces showed up. They showed up for battle entering and oppressing people throughout the countryside of Judea. And, uh, but Jesus was able to cast them out with a word. It was just a word. He was able to cast out whole armies of demons. In Luke 8, <clears throat> there was a time when Jesus saved a man from legion. It's how this host of demons who had entered the poor man identified themselves. We are legion, right? And the word legion, I mean, that's a... That's a military term. That's, 
a legion was the largest military unit of the Roman army, and at the time it was composed of something like 5,200 soldiers. 5,200 demons possessing a single man, a whole army of them. The demon legion begged Jesus not to command them to depart into the abyss, into the bottomless pit. Didn't even try to fight Jesus, just begged him. <clears throat> they feared the strength of the Lord to defeat them and to imprison them. And apparently this prison is the same kind of abyss or bottomless pit where the, the angel here in our passage seals up the dragon, the devil, for a thousand years. I think this abyss uh, isn't necessarily an actual place. If it is, it's not the kind of place that we can access or maybe even understand where you could go somehow and find the devil locked up and somebody could spring him out of there. And it's not that kind of a place, um, probably. After all, Revelation's full of symbolic language. It's probably a, a way to picture the severe limitation of his spiritual power. He's bound with a chain. He's thrown into the pit. It's sealed up over him. He is severely limited by the overpowering strength of the Lord. The devil and his forces have suffered a series of defeats that are often described in the same kind of way. There have been multiple times where he's been hamstrung by the Lord. Jesus was our champion and our representative as he went out into the wilderness after his baptism. The Spirit led him out into the wilderness to do battle with the devil. Jesus defeated him there. Not by any violent force. Not by anything that you would portray uh, with cool CGI in a movie but through his own persevering faithfulness to God. That was it. He was faithful to God, and he spoke the word of God. In spite of the difficult circumstances of being alone in the wilderness without food for 40 days, facing everything the devil could throw at him in terms of temptations. But Jesus did there what none of us ever would have done or ever could have done. He faced the dragon and he withstood him and he did it on our behalf in order to demonstrate his righteousness and in order to share his righteous victory over the devil with us, the victory of his faithfulness. To share it with us. Jesus defeated the devil throughout his ministry as he freed people from demonic oppression and restored them to their right minds, restored them to good, good judgment, restored them to self-control restored their relationships with God and with each other. He defeated the devil and his demons. Jesus said that he saw Satan fall like lightning out of heaven when his disciples reported what had happened as they preached the gospel, as they spoke the word of God in the countryside, that they even had power over demons in Jesus' name. He shared that victory with them. Colossians 2 says that Jesus' death on the cross is his great triumph over demonic powers. That's where we see the real exercise of his power, a very different kind of power where he's hanging on the cross and putting the spiritual forces of darkness to open shame at the same moment. <clears throat> his ultimate power is not seen in exercising violent force over the devil, but in his faithful, self-sacrificial love as he laid down his life for his people to open for us the way into his own heavenly glory. He shares everything with us. He holds nothing back, not even himself, not even, even his own life. 
In the book of Acts, as the apostles go forth in the power of Christ's spirit, they are able to bind up and cast out demons in the name of Jesus because he's shared his spiritual authority. He's shared his power with his people. And I think that last example is probably the kind of thing that's being referred to here. The angel comes down from heaven. Uh, Probably the Lord's angel, probably his spirit come down from heaven at work through the church, through the proclamation of Christ as king, through the proclamation of the gospel, especially. Symbolically pictured here as overpowering the devil and locking him up through the power of the spirit, through through the working of the church, through the proclamation of the gospel. Now is the time when the gospel is is running through the world. Now is the time when the good Lord is sharing his authority with the church and the dark Lord has been relatively powerless to stop it. Far from being able to deceive all the nations and mobilize them into coalitions against the church, the nations have been flooding into the church, streaming into the church. Almost a third of the people in the world now would identify with the church and would proclaim Jesus Christ as Lord. Since the devil's failed international coalition since the fall of Jerusalem in AD 70, we've been living in this time, this millennial age. Yes, it's been literally twice as long as the number, a thousand years here, but that number's symbolic. All the numbers in Revelation are symbolic. It's symbolic for a really long time, really full time. Not forever, but a whole age whole epoch of time. I say not forever because it's clear even from this passage that this is not the final state of things. Right? The devil has yet to make his last ditch comeback effort when he will be unrestrained and he will be able to deceive all the nations again and then and then be thrown permanently into the lake of fire. We'll talk about that next week. But this right now is the thousand years. This right now is the millennium. In a sense, it's the golden age of the church. And the reason why that might be difficult to believe is that we really get the sense of arrival and of glory from this passage. We get that sense. There are thrones. There's resurrection. There's coming to life to reign with Jesus for a thousand years that are supposed to characterize this millennium. It's easy to expect that that means things are going to be great and wonderful. Believers will always flourish, that the church will encounter no opposition in the world, that everything will feel like victory and peace and comfort. When we think about reigning with Christ, we imagine lords and ladies in beautiful attire on golden thrones where everyone is always happy to serve and obey the high Lord Jesus and all resistance has been wiped out. But we obviously still live in a fallen, broken, and sinful world. But you've got to remember, Jesus is giving us this revelation to encourage us with the way things really are from heaven's perspective, because it sure doesn't feel that way from just this earthly perspective. This glorious age of the reign of the saints with Christ, it really might not look like that to us apart from believing God's word of it. And there's plenty to bolster this understanding of the millennium here. 
in verse four, the thrones. Jesus sees these, uh, Jesus gives John the vision of these thrones. He sees these, they're the same thrones that he saw in chapters four and 11. And those thrones are in heaven. And who's sitting on those thrones? It's the souls of the martyrs and the souls of the faithful saints, those who have resisted temptations and persecutions even to the point of death. That's who's sitting on these heavenly thrones. This is described as, uh, in verse 5, the first resurrection, when these souls come to life in heaven with Christ to share his glory. The second resurrection is, is later. The second resurrection is the global ultimate bodily resurrection of everybody who ever lived. And we'll talk about that later in the chapter, <clears throat> again, probably next week. These souls reigning with Christ, they've died the first death. That's at least implicit. They've died the first death. They've left their bodies behind on this earth. They've died the bodily death, but verse six, they will not die the second death. They will not die the eternal death. They will not be in the lake of fire, these souls. So this first resurrection is describing the state of the saints who have died. They've left their bodies behind on this earth, whose souls have entered the presence of the Lord in heaven. Paul talks about that and he says, I wish I could go there. Even now, he says in Philippians chapter one, my desire is to depart and be with Christ. Because he knows that this, this passage describes what that reality is like. The faithful saints who die, they live in Christ's presence in glory. They're exalted. They're rewarded. They share in his heavenly rule. They await the end of the age. They await the second resurrection. They await the time when their souls will be reunited with their immortal bodies. And they enter into the eternal state, which is the new heavens and the new earth. The saints who persevered in their testimony of Jesus and the word of God. They were found faithful in little, so to speak, and therefore were rewarded with much authority, just as Jesus talks about in his parable of the Minas. You read about that in Luke 19, right? So just as Jesus himself was faithful, even to the point of death on the cross, so God rewarded him by sharing his heavenly throne with him, giving him all authority in heaven and on earth. And Jesus shares that power with his people because his father shared his power with him. And that's in the nature of the good God. It's in the nature of the triune God. It's in the nature of the good Lord to share power. The authority to judge here in our passage, it's committed to those who have demonstrated the only right judgment. They've been faithful in a little. They've exercised their judgment to the degree that they could. The only right judgment is to submit ourselves to his judgment. To say, his judgment is better than mine. That's the judgment that you should make. To say, Jesus's judgment is better than mine. And in submitting yourself to that judgment, he gives you authority to judge. The only right judgment you can say, you can make is to say, I entrust myself to the judgment of the good Lord. And when you do that, you'll enter into glory at his side. You will actually judge the world and judge, even judge angels with him. Paul talks about that in 1 Corinthians 6. And he says that in light of Christ sharing such authority with us that we're going to judge the world and even judge the angels. In light of that, 
we should be able to demonstrate true and right and good judgment, even here, even now, in this world. We should be able to settle disputes among ourselves in the church without having to go to courts of law. We should be able to submit to one another in important matters as true lords and ladies of the kingdom of God showing deference to one another in the judgment of God. The devil would have us all cowering in fear of death, bound in slavery to sin, hopeless and helpless before him. He would have us all play his zero-sum game and he would beat us all. We would all lose his game. The Dark Lord certainly does not share power. Thanks be to God, a greater power has overcome the Dark Lord. The good Lord Jesus keeps his promises. He gives us a glorious hope for the future. He frees us from our fears. He frees us from all the power of the devil. We might still face tribulation and death in this world, just as the good Lord himself did. But just as the good Lord has also risen in victorious, glorious life, and he's ascended to the throne of his Father in heaven, we also will reign together with him in his kingdom. Paul writes in 2 Timothy, this saying is trustworthy, so believe it. If we've died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. By his grace, we sing it, Jesus lives and so shall I. Through faith, we can also sing, Jesus reigns and so shall we. Because everything that's true about his human life with God, he shares with us. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you've granted your people your own spiritual authority by the power of your spirit whom, uh, with whom you've anointed us. Help us to entrust ourselves to your judgment, which is the only right use of our own judgment. Help us to exercise your authority, the power of love in this life, so that we would share your glorious rule in the life to come. We ask in your name. Amen.